You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his Good morning. Today I get the honor of introducing to you my my buddy Rudy, the man that um, uh, brought both myself and my wife to Christ. Before I do that, though, there's a another prayer um, to uh, br- another brother and sister of ours that in need of prayers that I, I want to. It's timely that we do it right, do it now. So if you'll pray with me. Lord God, please be with Chris, Luke, and Sydney Anderson. Lord, they are getting on the plane to New Zealand. They are leaving us and moving over there, Lord. That's a long ways. Lord, they are brothers and sisters. And we love them. Keep them safe as they travel. Uh, hold that plane up high and get it, get it to that island nice and safe. And be with them every step of the way and be there when they get to that island and help them to find a good and loving church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that Chris and Sydney are not on Zoom, so I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I rather like those two. <laughs> I, I'm going to miss them something, something fierce. But one good thing that I know is those two are our brothers and sisters. They are in Christ. Do you, do you have other people in your life uh, who are good people, who you dearly love, who are not in Christ? Well, they're, well you know their destination, and it's not New Zealand. And have you ever wanted to share with them? The, the hope that you have in Christ, the, the, the joy, the, the knowledge that life is better. Have you ever been hesitant to share, uh, afraid of um, hurting feelings, afraid of getting your... Have you ever not shared and, and wish you had? Well... You have an opportunity this next two weeks. My buddy Rudy Cantu is here. And for all his flaws, he has shared Christ with a lot of people. He has experience doing that. From 1961 to the present, he has done what he can to to help save good people out there. And during this two weeks, he's going to try to share some of his experience with you. And um, he's a good guy. I think it'll be worth a listen. Good morning, church. You're probably wondering 
why this balding miniature silverback gorilla is here. They have nothing to fear. When I, uh, I started uh, preaching in Texas, I earned the name Brother Samanex because uh, I was not known for being a dynamic rabble rouser, more academic than anything. But I'm telling you right now, I am honored to be here. I'm proud that you have allowed me access to this pulpit to talk about one thing that I know. I'll let you know in advance, I'm not a preacher. I'm an evangelist. Uh, I could preach maybe till the preacher gets here, but basically I'm a teacher. And so what I hope to teach today is about who gets home. I don't know if you watch much television. Um, my trade is I... Uh, when I work it, I am a consultant. I own my own uh, public relations communications firm. So my experience is in communications. I know the, the math and the dynamics of uh, mass communications. I used to watch television for nothing but the ads. And the programs, I would, if I could, I'd just speed through them and wait till I get to the ads. I wanted to see who the competition was and how good they were. Now, not too long ago, I had uh, jaw. My jaw was, they had to work on it. I had had cancer, so it killed the cast, very tiny capillaries in, in my bones and I developed gaps and they did bone transplants and things. And so it, the jaw wasn't exactly right. So every now and then, if I'm chewing gum or a piece of bread or something, I'll bite my tongue. And oh man, that's terrible. Uh, so that's a liability that I walk around with all the time. So I was watching television and a commercial came on it was a denominational uh, uh, ad, and the title of it, of the campaign is, He Gets Us. He Gets Us. Has anybody seen that ad, those ads? Okay, you, some, you've seen them. So, um, uh, the first time I viewed this television ad, I was chewing gum, and I bit my lip and my tongue, and my cheek, one right after the other. Uh, I think I was on my way to the bathroom, but I stopped. And I turned around, and I went and looked, and I said, what is the message here? I asked myself, what are you selling me? God sacrificed his only begotten son, Jesus. Jesus was betrayed, mocked, falsely accused, lied about, charged with non-crimes, condemned by 
Roman subhumans, tortured by human animals, and then legally murdered. So that I would not have to suffer the penalties of my own transgressions. And now I have to be convinced that he cares about me. Whoever conceived this message knows something about my trade. They know something about positioning. In advertising or communications, positioning is going to be a, uh, a slogan or something that a company does that sets them apart from all the other ones and somehow suggests that they are superior in whatever it is that they're doing. Ford Motor Company at one time, at Ford Motor Company, quality is job one. Now, they didn't tell you what kind of quality, but they said quality is job one. Uh, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, burger King, have it your way. We're the ones that let you do the burger, get the burger that you want. So you can lie on TV if you want, but, but you're taking a position. <clears throat> they know something about that. Well, the people who dreamed up this campaign know something. That was their positioning. He gets us, and we know that he gets us, so we're going to sell him to you on the, on the proposition that he, basically the proposition that he gets us, and we know how to put you in touch. I guess that's, that's the conclusion. Uh, they know that the contemporary denominationalist has not been exposed to the gospel. I mean, if they really have studied, they know that's what he's not been exposed to. Now, that's tr it's tra tragic enough that the average Joe does not know one end of the Bible from another. But on top of that, he has no awareness of his predicament, of um, why he's miserable, doesn't even know he's miserable, and unfulfilled. For him, the whole, the vacancy, the gap in his life is all about feeling. Hosea tells us in Hosea 4, 6, what's happening here with this guy. He's lost because he says, my, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, you can look at it, about feeling and emotions. He says... Um, in 17.7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves will be green and he will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. Emotions are tough to understand. One of my majors in college was psychology. And psychology deals with uh, how you know things, what, what is learning, those kinds of things. It taught me a great deal about when we're teaching masses or when we're teaching individuals how one may structure his, his uh, presentation in a way to make it most effective. But emotions, yeah, those are difficult. Uh, if I am uh, across the table from a prospect who is highly emotional and not very rational, 
you might as well just drag me away and put in a tape recorder because I, I have difficulty in dealing with that. I understand to some degree what they're feeling. I just do not know how to communicate uh, in any other way but practical, rational, logical terms. That makes me a pretty good evangelist when I'm talking to engineers and uh, programmers and people like that. But artists and butterfly collectors, I, I have difficulty with. So, they know this about feeling. Reason requires information. So this fellow that they're aiming for has none. So he is left to feel alone and is alienated from everyone. He may feel that God has abandoned him. He feels like whoever this Jesus character is owes him something, some personal attention. God just doesn't understand him. Well, I think that what this guy's problem is, is that he is full of himself. Now, that's going to be a problem with everybody. The self is a problem for everybody, which I suppose is why Jesus says you have to leave something behind. What would it be? You have to leave yourself behind. He'll fall for anything that he thinks will make him feel better, more important, possessing the best and the newest of earth's offerings. In that regard, he's like every pagan of the first century who has either been untouched by the gospel or is a recent convert to Christ, like those in the church of Christ in Corinth in the first century, to whom Paul has written, the epistles. I'm going to spend most of my time in 1 Corinthians. I'll be a couple of times I'll deviate, but most of the time I'll be in 1 Corinthians, largely 4, 5, and 6. So we'll be flipping around. If you're already in 1 Corinthians, stick around uh, chapters 4 or 5, and you'll be able to keep up. <clears throat> Our future in what the scriptures call the new and living way. The Bible never refers to what we are as Christianity. Never in the Bible are we referred to as being involved in Christianity. What Christians are involved in is a way, a new way, a living way. Now, that is important for you to know. And if it's important for you to know, it's important for you to teach. The reason I was asked to come here is because you are developing an evangelism team. Your elders and two or three people are on that team. We, I work uh, at a congregation that varies in attendance from 20 plus to 30 plus members. And in that congregation, we have six members of the team. This congregation 
Looks to me like you have well over 100, right? And you have three. So that tells me that some of you don't understand that in Matthew 28, when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, that he is saying, through logic, we can extrapolate and we can see what he's saying. He's saying, I want you apostles to go, number one. If you're at home watching television in the uh, easy chair, the probabilities of a horde of people coming to your house and asking you to teach them about the gospel, teach them about Christ, are very low. So Jesus says, go. Preach the gospel to every living creature. That means human. Every person. Now he's telling the apostles. There's just 12 of them. It's going to be tough for them, the 12, to make that, glow, that circuit, even in the, what was known as the world in those days. So he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What did he just command them to do? To go, preach, baptize, and teach. Paul, when addressing Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, you know, the things you've learned, heard, seen from me, you teach those to other faithful men who are able to teach others also to go and do the same thing and teach others also to go and do the same thing, to teach others to go and do also the same thing. That essentially means everybody. In Acts 8, 4, after a persecution, the church of Jerusalem is persecuted, and the scriptures say, Luke says, every, all of them, they went everywhere preaching the word. Did he say... All the preachers went out and go preaching the word. All the deacons, all the elders, all the uh, clerics. He said, all of them, members of the church. So, if, uh, and by the way, when I preach, if they'll allow it, you know, we, we have, uh, there are congregations that have the class first and then, the worship assembly. Uh, I prefer the worship assembly first and then the class because if you want to know how to grow up in respect to salvation, 30 minutes, if you're lucky to get 30 minutes in a sermon, 30 minutes a week it is nothing. The average student as a freshman, sophomore, senior in the university here, wherever, uh, in Ellensburg or wherever it is, they'll have between four and six classes, have three hours a week of instruction, and then 45 hours a week of study. Now you tell me how it is that that study, say, 
in uh, trigonometry is going to be more important than an hour or two of study in how to save yourself and to save others. We spend more time often learning first aid in this country than we do learning how to save others from eternal condemnation, how to give them eternal life in Christ Jesus. That doesn't make any sense to me. It isn't rational. It tells me that if we are focused on that, that we must not believe what the scriptures teach. So when I'm talking to you, I'm really asking you implicitly, do you believe what the Bible teaches? Our future in the new and living way is about salvation. And it is not about God's understanding us, but about our understanding him. Globally, the saints on this earth are jealously picked at and resented for the church's positioning in the ecclesiastical landscape as one, the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. Jesus says the church is his body. The church is my body. Paul says it's his body. And twice, two different epistles, the Ephesians and the Colossians. And the body is the church. It's the same thing. You are members of the church of the firstborn, the church of God, the church of Christ, the Support, pillar and support of the truth. That's you. So as the body of Christ, you're resented. As the contemporary mirror of the first century church, you're resented. And finally, as the most dedicated pursuer of biblical authenticity, you are resented. The denominations resent us with increasing severity and hostility. And why is that? Because biblical authenticity only comes with precise biblical interpretation. Interpretive precision only comes with practice. And practice only comes with daily respect to salvation. Daily, if not constant, immersion in the word of God. That's a point to which I'll return to later. So while we, the royal priesthood, were once upon a time the Bible Bowl champions of the globe, we engaged the Bible intently and daily. We argued from its contents and with its meanings. We woke up in the mornings with it in our thoughts, and we retired for the night with it on our lips. The result? Greater understanding. Our job was to continue growing up in all aspects, not to save ourselves from punishment, but to die to self and to die to sin, taking on the character and spirit of Jesus the Christ. Our desire was not for Jesus to get us. Our job was to get him, and our goal was to 
be him. We already knew that he cared for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We knew that God loved us. John three sixteen. we all know that one. We knew that the Son of God suffered and died in our stead for us. In 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2. We're told that. How could we doubt that he gets us? So this morning, we will study from Paul's letter to the Church of Christ in Corinth. We're already turned there, and we'll spend most of our time there. Let's start with chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it's reported. Paul writes to a congregation of Christian sinners. It's an unruly church. Now, he's not writing to them because he woke up and said, you know, I haven't talked to them in a long time. I think I'll write them. I'll criticize this or that. Let them know I'm still handy. He didn't do that. He writes to the churches in Corinth, Rome, Ephesus, churches of Christ, where he, he can write to probably more than we have the collection of them because he has been informed. He knows that there are specific problems. And if you want problems, you got them in the Corinthian church. There was a young man a few years ago when I was in Yakima. And he came to me and he said, you know what I want is I want to find a pure church. What's that? You know, a church that's right about everything. Everybody behaves themselves. And I, said, I never got to answer that question. I think I was probably biting my tongue then. Um, uh, I'm thinking about it. We look at the New Testament. Paul is writing to churches with problems. They all had problems. And they are churches of Christ. What makes us think that we're going to have... Look, the, the model of the church of Christ is perfect. The only problem is you guys. It's the people in the church, which is the church, they're the problem. And you might look at the church as sort, in a way as sort of like a hospital. It's sort of like a college. It's sort of like a, uh, a lot of things where the people of God come together and they instinctively gather together like coals in a fire, they get together and then they ignite into a fire. We get together for a lot of things. We teach each other. Iron sharpens iron, steel sharpens steel. Uh, we correct each other. We confess our sins to one another. We forgive one another. We pray for one another. We sing hymns to God and to one another. We 
psalms, hymns, teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is one of the things that we do when we gather together. It's a strengthening program. We don't have perfect congregations. Every one of us is struggling with something, and that's what I'm talking about this morning. I was here to talk about evangelism, and evangelism is for a purpose. Paul writes to the churches for a purpose, and that purpose is to train the people of God to participate in a process that helps to extinguish those things which are problematic. If if I'm a bigot and I just can't stand the peonies. I won't even have peonies in my yard. And so I tell him, get out of my yard and I replace them with ivy. If I'm a bigot about human beings, I chose peonies because... It's harmless. They're flowers, I guess. There's some kind of vegetation. But that way nobody could come back to me and say, wow, you shouldn't have mentioned that. So if I'm a bigot, the problem is not that I do bigoted things, that I say bigoted words. That's not the problem. The problem is that I am a bigot, right? It's what's inside that counts. Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, you know, you guys look good on the outside. You're trying to do everything right, but you're not doing the right things. If you would, instead of trying to clean your image on the outside and make it sharp, clean the inside of the cup. Now, that is probably the most fundamental precept in Christology. That the problem is not any, the problem with the Jews is what they did. Problem with Christians is who they are. It's who you are that determines what you do. If I get a dog bite and I put a Band-Aid on it and the dog has rabies, the Band-Aid's not going to do any good. If I attempt to curb my behavior to placate God or to placate somebody who interposes himself between God and me, whether it be a pope or a preacher or a pastor, I'm basically reverting back to Judaism. God knows that the problem is internal. So he has... In the scriptures, we see revealed, he has processes that if we simply join him in the restoration program of his, that we 
You can see this in Ephesians 4. We can grow up. I'm going to tell you this morning that your job as a Christian is to grow. That's not job one. Four might be quality. Yours is grow up in every way, all aspects, every way you can think of, into Christ. Does that sound biblical to you? If, if it doesn't, if you think it's crazy, you can ask me, how do you know that? And there's only one right answer. There's only one right answer to that question. When you're asked, how do you know that that religious faith statement that you just made is, is so? There's only one right answer. The Bible teaches it. So I'm going to assume you're asking me, how do I know that? Well, the Bible teaches it. Well, you have another question coming. What is it? Where does it teach that? All right, we're going to get out of Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians for a while, and let's go to uh, Ephesians. How about that? Ephesians 4. <clears throat> now, I, I hope to hear a lot of pages turning because this is your primary battle rifle. If you're here without one of these of your own, you're going into combat with a stick, with nothing. So do I hear pages turning? Okay, Ephesians 4. Beginning with, say, verse 13. He's telling them, God placed in the church functionaries beginning with the apostles in the first century, but he placed in a lot of functionaries, teachers, apostles, this, that, the other. For what reason? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. You're the saints, equipping you to do your job. Now, job one, grow up. To the building up of the body of Christ. You're the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What did that just say to you? What did that just say? It says, until we, you attain something, knowledge of the Son of God, till you attain knowledge of the Son of God, to what degree? To a mature person, how mature? Well, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does that seem to say to you? Well, I'm still in doubt. Okay, well, let's go on then. In verse 14, as a result, we, the church of Christ, members of the church, we are no longer to be children, Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, are you reading this? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. That italicized word there, even is always that is to say, comma, that is to say, comma, that. 
Christ. Now, I would like for someone who disagrees with this to tell me how that does not say that in some fashion you are to grow up to in some way mimic, resemble, mingle, identify as Christ, as Jesus. It's not even be like Jesus. It is be him in character. That sounds like a tall order to you, does it? Now you have, the, you have Paul saying this to the church in Ephesus. That's the Christian job. I tell you what, would Jesus be more authoritative? You think? Let's go to Matthew 5. Turn with me to Matthew 5. We looked at that this morning in class. And by the way, most people, when they go to measure a church to evaluate it on the basis of its merits, you know what they do? They come to the worship assembly and see if they like it. If you don't go to class here, if you're not going to class, you're not serious. That's where you learn how to do this during the worship assembly. Let's, let's look at one thing at a time here. Matthew 5. Let's start with verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be, what's that word? Perfect. No, it doesn't just mean mature, you're growing up. It means perfect. Well, it doesn't mean, you know, perfect. It means kind of like perfect. It's perfect even as my Father in heaven is perfect. Over and over again, you have the same message in the New Testament that you have to change. You have to grow spiritually. When you're growing spiritually, you are extinguishing those things inside of you that cause you to misjudge the relative worth of all things. So, Someone that I meet on the street that's stumbling around, mumbling to himself because he's on some kind of a drug, at some point he had to make the decision, is this valuable? This thing that I'm being offered, which would allow me to belong to the contemporary culture, this thing, is it, was it valuable? And he said yes, and he took it, and now he's stumbling and mumbling on the street. He can't judge anything rightly. Looks like um, I can't judge time. So my point this morning, I did get through 25% of a sermon. 
prior to moving to Washington State, my shortest sermon was 45 minutes. Now I see that the allotted time for sermons has gone from 45 minutes to 30 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes in some places. How do you think that measures up to class work? If you knew everything, you wouldn't have to come to class. Everybody who knows everything, raise your hand. Okay. Well, it looks like everybody wants to go to class. This morning, I didn't get to tell you what's missing. Maybe I'll have a chance next Sunday. Certainly, uh, I'll be available 24 hours a day for two weeks here. All you got to do is wake Jack up, and, and he'll come get me. Anytime you have questions or anything about anything, I'll be available. So he might set up little pockets of time where we can, you can come and ask me questions about how to do this or that. I'm supposed to help you to learn how to evangelize. And the first thing that I was trying to do is get you to see the main problem is the inside has to be changed. So when you get that, it's easy to get the gospel. When you get the gospel, you have the power of God. You got the power of God, you're an evangelist. So this morning, I just want you to realize that as a human being, you have frailties. You're vulnerable. You're flawed. And if you have failed in some way that you need the help of this congregation, I want you to come forward and talk to your ministers and to your elders and talk to them about how you and they can arrange some way to help you get better. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're out of the ball game. You're not even in the game, and you're lost. You need to be a Christian. The only people who will be saved are Christians. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, we want you to be saved. We want you to be helped. We want to talk to you about the gospel. That's all it is. You can reject it if you want, but at least listen to it. If you're subject to that invitation, would you please come forward as we stand and sing the song of encouragement.